You're listening to Spoonie Tea Time, where we talk about faith, books, and chronic illness. I'm Holly Conklin. I was diagnosed with arthritis shortly after graduating university, and this radically shaped my life, my faith, and my way of interacting with the world. Join me for a glimpse into the life of the chronically ill. Hello there, and welcome to episode three. This last week, I became a catechumen of the Orthodox Church. For those of you who do not know what that means, which I am assuming is most of you, that's not a word we tend to throw around a lot in this context. A catechumen is someone who is under the church's instruction on basic Christian doctrine before baptism. This is a practice with very early roots. I believe in the first century it started, but at least the second century it was around. Most of the early Christians were Jews. They came from a background of knowing quite a bit about scripture. They knew something about who Yahweh is, and they knew about the prophecies regarding the Messiah. So it was more of a natural step into Christianity. Whereas you can imagine Christianity is quite a bit different from paganism. And when most of the converts started being Gentiles, the church quickly realized that they needed a system in which to make sure that these converts actually knew what they were getting into. So they started enrolling them as catechumens uh, before formally baptizing them, and they would teach them basic Christian doctrine. It was important for them that people knew who Christ was and were serious about him before being admitted as full members of the church. And that's a practice that has continued to this day in the Eastern Church. And I think a lot of Western churches have something like this with varying degrees of formality. But yeah, that was the most notable part of my week. I am now an Orthodox catechumen. It doesn't really change my life all that much at this point, but I guess I do like having the the formal title. I like knowing my place in the world. I just finished... Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. I have grown quite fond of Sanderson this last year, and I've only read a few of his books, but I have enjoyed them all quite a bit, so I've started buying any that I find on sale on Audible mostly. And this one I got on a two-for-one sale along with Warbreaker, so I'll be reading that one next. Elantris is Sanderson's debut novel, It's not my favorite of his, to be honest. I did enjoy it, but it is his first book. It's not quite as well-crafted as his later ones, I don't think, but it's still pretty interesting and quite good. And now for a spoiler warning. While I would never give away anything that would ruin a book for me, I know some people have differing levels of sensitivity to spoilers, so if you really hate spoilers, do not continue listening to this. I will be talking a little bit about the big picture ending of the book and whatnot, but all the little details and twists and turns I will remain silent on. As Brandon Sanderson put it, this book is about a prison city for zombie lepers. I really liked that description. So this prison city he is talking about is Elantris, which used to be the city of the gods, essentially. So there was 
this land and mysteriously various people, there's no predicting it would suddenly become shiny and powerful and not quite immortal, but along those lines. And they would have these magic abilities and all that. And they were called Elantrians and they all moved to Elantris. And it was this glowing city filled with godlike beings who seemed to never die. And, uh, they were worshipped as gods and these little cities formed up around Elantris and grew prosperous because of the Elantrians. But uh, one day, 10 years before the book starts, suddenly everything falls to pieces. There's a great earthquake and all the Elantrians are, instead of glorious gods, are reduced to zombie lepers. Essentially, all their hair falls out, they get all these splotches on their skin, and their heart stops beating. So instead of gods, they become a plague, and Elantris becomes a prison city for them, and anyone who randomly becomes Elantrian, which still happens, gets sent to this prison city. And the story follows Prince Rayodin, who, uh, wakes up one morning as an Elantrian, gets shoved into this city, and everyone thinks he's dead, but he's not, and he tries to make the most of his situation and bring hope and light to this dying city, and he has his work cut out for him. So the thing about these Elantrians is that they can't die, but they also aren't really alive, so they're not healing, so anytime you get a scrape or a bruise, it's there to stay. So you can imagine over time, the longer you're living there, you accumulate tons and tons of little scrapes and bruises, some people even worse, broken limbs, but you're not healing and you're not dying. So eventually these people almost inevitably become insane and they just succumb to their pain and cannot function and their mind just goes completely away. And this is something that Rayodin is trying to fight against and bring hope to this dying city that's just full of despair and pain. And there's some other drama happening in the outside world too that's quite interesting, but I'm not going to bother talking about it for this podcast because I think that Elantris itself is far more interesting. As someone with chronic pain and fatigue, I really connected with this city for obvious reasons, all the pain and... <laughs> Well, they're also quite fatigued and that despair and hopelessness. So I connected to the story as a Spoonie, but honestly, I think I connected even more so as just a human being. Uh, the more I think about it, the more powerful an image Elantris is of every fallen human being. According to scripture and traditional Christian teaching, we are created to be essentially gods. I think the scripture actually uses that kind of terminology, small g, of course, don't panic. But faithful Christians are called sons of God, and Christ says that we will be equal to the angels, and we're called a royal priesthood, and kings, and all that. So we do have this glorious destiny, which I think is reminiscent of the Elantrians at their full glory as well, where you see these beings who are shining they all glow, they have these powers, they're godlike in a lot of ways, and that's what we would have been if we didn't sin and reject communion with the god of life and glory and all things good. And so, reading that book, I can really feel the pain of the Elantrians who used to have so much beauty and glory and are now just withering away as zombie lepers with no hope. 
But of course, in the book, they do end up having hope. And here's where the spoiler comes in, although I think it's pretty obvious that Elantris is going to recover. The prince is able to figure out why everything fell apart. In a Christ kind of moment, he also essentially dies. And when he um, wakes up again just long enough to fix the problem and all these zombies wake up in their full beauty and power and save the world or whatever. And I almost cried at that part, to be honest, because it's something I crave so much. Um, again, as a Spoonie, but also just as a human being and a Christian, we do look around and we are fallen and we are a far cry from what we're supposed to be. And I think we all crave that, even if we don't recognize it. And it's such an amazing hope that Christians have that this isn't the end, that we will reclaim that glory if we stick to God and his promises. And it's going to be even more amazing than what happens in Elantris. And I am stoked about that personally. And this book has helped me recover some of that hope that I often lose <laughs> daily. Um, so I, I appreciate it for that and I think it's worth thinking about and reading and remembering that this is ultimately all of us. Today we are going to talk about valuing yourself. What? I really struggled with knowing how to title this episode. I'm not a huge fan of some of the self-esteem movements out there. I don't think they do a good job of actually addressing what gives life and humanity value. I settled on calling this the glory of humanity because I've already overused that word glory in this podcast. It seemed fitting and we are glorious and we do need to reflect on that, especially when we're going through dark times where we're developing chronic illnesses and crap and feel like we're useless, which if you're anything like me, you've definitely felt from time to time, possibly even if you don't have a disability. If you haven't already guessed, this is a topic close to my heart, and I really never expected it to be. I grew up in an evangelical household, I've mentioned that before, and I did grow up believing probably much better things about humanity than the average person in our culture. For example, I was never raised to believe that I was only worthwhile if I looked a certain way or acted a certain way. I didn't feel bad about being an introvert or not caring about my appearance that much and things like that. And so I was, I think, a fairly well-adjusted teenager, especially compared to a lot of the other ones out there. It's heartbreaking to see how worthless people think they are. And I did spend some time in a pretty Calvinistic church, and I do understand some of the, you know, human depravity side of things. We are fallen and broken, and we rejected God. And so, yes, there are many reasons to think that we aren't doing so well, but that's not the point of this episode. It was a pretty odd experience for me developing a disability and realizing how much weight I put onto all this superficial stuff that I thought I didn't care as much about. You know, people always talk about wanting to be beautiful and have a great career and have an awesome family and all this stuff. And these were things, well, maybe minus the beautiful thing, 
but the career and the family were things I did value quite a bit, but I like to think that they weren't the end of things. I wasn't obsessed with getting tons of money or what have you, but I didn't realize how much I still wanted prestige and, well, at least a family or something. But as my condition got worse and as more evidence came out that this was going to be a permanent thing and I started realizing that a lot of these things I was chasing, the career, the family, all of that, might never be possible for me. And as time went on, that was looking more and more like the case and it became pretty hard to bear life when you don't have these goals and dreams and you don't know why you're here. Eventually, even things like my personality, which I thought, well, at least I can be good to be around. Well, maybe I'm not good to be around if I can't do anything, if I'm grumpy because my blood sugar is crazy and I have an autoimmune illness and I'm a little depressed from that, and maybe I'm not joking around as much because I'm chronically fatigued. And a lot of my time developing this illness was spent grasping desperately for anything to give me purpose. I did everything I could to keep working and creating and trying to be as functional as possible so I wasn't just a blob sitting in the corner draining my parents' resources. I wasn't always very successful at these things though, I had a lot going against me. And the less I was able to do, the more I grasped at things that I never thought I would care about. For example, I mentioned that I've never cared that much about what I looked like, but suddenly, when I couldn't do anything else, I found myself really upset when I developed inflamed acne. Because it felt like the last thing I had was a clear face, and if I couldn't do anything else, at least I could be cute or something, but... Often, that wasn't even possible. Ultimately, though, I am quite thankful for these experiences. I don't think I would have realized how much I was overvaluing a lot of these lower things if I hadn't had them all taken away from me. And it also got me thinking about how I interacted with other people. I never thought I was someone who would frown upon someone else for having a disability, for example, yet here I was thinking that I was useless and being frustrated with myself and not knowing why I was bothering living. And what does that say about my attitude towards anyone else with my illness? How can I tell someone else that their life has meaning if I don't think my own does? In general, I think our society does a very, very bad job of preparing us for these kinds of situations. We live in a culture that says if your baby is going to be born with a disability, kill it. I just saw a news article come out that only 18 babies in all of Denmark were born the last year with Down syndrome. I think Iceland also aborts any babies who might develop Down syndrome, which is horrifying. And what is that saying about people who do have Down syndrome? These abortions suggest that they shouldn't be alive, that they would have been better if they had been murdered at a young age, which is completely false. 
And it's especially ridiculous when you consider how cheerful people with Down syndrome often are. I mean, they are often enjoying life way more than I ever do. And even if they weren't, they are totally precious, just like everyone else, and we should be preserving them and emphasizing that. It's an insult to everyone with Down syndrome, and I believe ultimately an insult to humanity at large. It is a declaration that you are not worth keeping around if you do not fit our mold of functionality and usefulness, which, yes, I do believe extends to me. And I do take it personally when policies like euthanasia are emphasized and encouraged. That is another policy that essentially is saying if you are in pain, you should not be living. As much as I can empathize with these people who are in far greater suffering than I've ever been in, I can't imagine it being helpful for them to know that their doctors don't think they should live anymore and that their life has no purpose or meaning or value, which it does. And that just opens the doors for a lot more lenient terms on assisted suicide. I'm pretty sure in some countries that even I would be eligible for euthanasia, which is absolutely insulting and discouraging, to be honest. And to my shame, I should admit that I have been on the fence about some of these policies in the past. I mean, I can't understand what some of these euthanized patients are going through, and who am I to say that they shouldn't kill themselves? But I've realized that it's policies like these that have led to a culture that does not understand how to value life, and that led to me, even though I grew up in a relatively good home, to believe that maybe I didn't have purpose and value. And I don't want anyone to ever feel like that, and I don't want anyone to ever treat anyone like that which is why I've made it my goal to learn and appreciate the value in all human beings and to emphasize that in my own life. I think there is a lot to be said about some of the pro-life movements out there that focus on educating people, but I think one of the things that we can all work on no matter where we are and how fatigued we are is learning to value life. And I think when we learn to do this, it comes out naturally in how we interact with others and treat them and can't help but influence people to show more respect for life, which I think has far-reaching consequences. So how do we do that? Frankly, apart from God, I don't think we can ascribe universal value to humanity, but thankfully God does exist, and not only that, but he created us in his likeness and image. We are living icons of the Almighty, and we reflect him. Every single one of us, no matter how depraved and broken, cannot help but reflect God Almighty to some degree. We all do that, too, in a slightly different way. You reflect God in a unique way that I can't possibly and this means that every single person we meet can teach us something about God that we could never learn from anyone else. And that means you too have that same power and ability. Again, this is regardless of how sinful and fallen you are. Even if we tried, we could not completely squash this image of God in our lives. 
Although we can seek to magnify it, we can draw near to God and have his beauty and goodness shine even more brightly in our lives. C.S. Lewis described this more beautifully than I could ever hope, so I am going to read a passage from The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. Ugh, I absolutely love that passage, and I think it's very helpful for me to read that every so often to help remember who I'm dealing with and who I am as well. And I would encourage all you listeners to think on these things and think about what you think makes you valuable and everyone else valuable. And if you don't see the value in humanity, I would encourage you to think more on God's glory and remember that all these wonderful characteristics of him are reflected in some part by humans. Ultimately, we find our value not because we think about ourselves and why we are thriving or failing, but thinking about God and what he's done and who he is and remembering that he created us to reflect him. One of the most helpful books I've ever read for dwelling on these topics is The Orthodox Way by Bishop Callistos Ware which even if you're not at all interested in Eastern Orthodoxy, you may want to give a try. It's short, I found it pretty easy to read, and it's one of those few books that talks about theology in a way that makes it actually applicable. I remember reading it and being filled with so much wonder at who God is and also being so encouraged by the place he's given humanity in his creations. So if you're feeling down about life and you don't understand why God is so glorious and why, by extension, people are also glorious, I would encourage you to give it a try. I will link to it in the show description. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. You can send questions, criticisms, comments, and concerns to spoonyteatime at gmail.com. Until next time, rest hard and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.